0: Hey everybody, this is comedian John Hepburn, and you're listening to P.F.'s Tape Recorder.
1: Hello there, I'm P.F., this is my tape recorder. Coming up, Ralph Parason leaving it all behind and going for your dream.
0: I remember the guy telling me I'm gonna have to let you go, and I said, man, what am I supposed to do? He says, Ralph, you don't know it right now. This is the best thing that could happen to you. He said, dude, you're funny. You're going to be a star. Go out there and get it, man. He said, don't get held up with this.
1: We'll hear more from Ralph in just a bit. We have another case of crime song investigation, and I respond to NPR's review of the Beach Boys box set. But first, as always, fake news. And now, fake news with me. Fact-checking website PolitiFact is out with the latest edition of its Lie of the Year. In 2013, the dubious prize went to President Obama for his widely derided claim, if you like your health care plan, you can keep it. Opponents of the ACA were disappointed that none of the dozens of lies they told about Obamacare could top the presidents. Arriving on stage at FNB Stadium in Johannesburg to pay tribute to Nelson Mandela, President Barack Obama shook hands with dozens of other world leaders pausing briefly to grasp the hand of Cuban President Raul Castro. The greeting quickly sparked a strong debate on Twitter between those who praised and disagreed with the handshake, given that the United States has not shared diplomatic relations with Cuba. At a reception later, Obama did ask Castro to pull his finger, and the Cuban leader fell for it. Fox News channel host Megan Kelly returned to her show Friday night and refused to apologize for earlier comments in which she insisted that both Santa Claus and Jesus Christ were white men. Apparently, we ignited quite a controversy the other night, Kelly said near the top of her show. Humor is part of what we try to bring to this show, but sometimes that is lost on the humorless, Kelly said, attempting to turn the table on her critics who have accused her of being everything from insensitive to an outright racist. Uh, Kelly apparently failing to grasp the concept that a humorous segment should be funny. North Korea executed Kim Jong Un's once powerful uncle and the young leader's mentor, Jang Song-taek, for reasons for treason, gambling, drug use, and womanizing before being taken away by guards, Jang expressed regret over advising Kim to execute anyone who misbehaves in the government. And finally, a U.S. guided missile cruiser operating in international waters on the South China Sea was forced to take evasive action last week to avoid a collision with a Chinese warship maneuvering nearby, the U.S. Pacific Fleet said in a statement on Friday. Comedian Bill Maher could not be reached for an Asian driver joke. And that's been Fake News with me. Okay, Fangirl is here with me. Hey, yo! All right, so we're gonna—it's a another case of crime song investigation, and uh, I'm gonna pop off the sunglasses and go. Looks like Mr. Timberlake might be guilty. <laughs> Okay, so uh, here are our two, um, I guess, uh, plaintiff and victim here. So uh, we're going to go with, uh, I guess we'll play the Justin Timberlake track first. So I'll give you a little blast of this. Guess okay, so that's the beginning of Mirrors, and now I give to you uh, from the early 80s Classic Nouveau. Okay, so fangirl's nodding her head. I think there's an open and shut case on that one. I think so. I, I knew that Mirror sounded like something, but I couldn't place my finger on it because it had to have been a song that I had heard once or twice in my life, probably just from it coming up on my yeah. iPod on Shuffle. That's got to be what it is. There you go. Okay. All right. Well, I no need to play them both back to back again. I think you have that there. I mean, that's probably a pretty common musical device, you know, yeah. so, but, and then the rest of Mirrors, of course, doesn't sound anything like guilty, but the <laughs> beginning of the, to the two tracks, does sound uh, pretty similar, that's so... Awesome. Um, I think we'll uh, let Mr. Timberlake off with probation. (laughs) I think so. All right. Thanks, Vandral. Normally, when I'm doing a fake bit, I uh, kind of look through the headlines and see what you know might make a good bit, or uh, something really strikes me and I think, oh, I've got to write a bit about this. And uh, that's what happened this week. Although it did not happen with something political, it was something from the entertainment world. The uh, Beach Boys released a box set a couple of weeks ago called Made in California. It's got a lot of rarities and outtakes and things like that. And they reviewed it on the NPR program Fresh Air, which is Terry Gross's fine program. Highly recommended. List, uh, check your local listings. You can listen to it on the NPR our app or listen to it online. Anyway, uh, music historian Ed Ward reviewed the box set. It was an okay review. He starts off telling us how the Beach Boys were formed and the early couple albums and the whole Pet Sounds thing and all that. Okay, so uh, that's all well and good. And Then he gets to the 70s and he unloads this on us.
2: But with very few exceptions, the 1970s were, creatively, a disaster, as the band swung from hippie meanderings to painfully crafted songs of nostalgia. Their only top ten record in the whole decade was a version of Chuck Berry's rock and roll music.
1: Okay, I have several problems with this. First of all, the number of top ten hits or chart hits, not necessarily a measuring stick of musical talent, as we all know. All right, so there you go. So that's Exhibit A. Uh, Secondly, I I agree with the the fact that a lot of the 70s albums like Carl and the Passions and and Holland and all those albums, very uneven. Uh, They did in 1976 release an album called 15 Big Ones, though. Even though it had a couple of covers on it, a lot of nice uh, new tracks on it. And that's the album that rock and roll uh, music came from, the cover of the Chuck Berry tune, as well as this little ditty that also cracked the top 40. Fun is in, it's no sin, it's that time. It's okay from the 1976 Beach Boys album. 15 big ones. Do check it out. Okay, now that later in the uh, 70s, there were some even more uneven spots. They had an album called Keeping the Summer Alive, which, you know, had uh, some okay tunes on it. But this one, written by Carl Wilson and Randy Bachman of Bachman and Turner and Overdrive. can hear that Randy Bachman twinge there, I'm sure. Now, this is uh, coming off of two, uh, probably their two worst albums, uh, M.I.A. and L.A. Light. Although L.A. Light produced a top 40 hit with Good Timing, But uh, people agree those are probably your two worst Beach Boys albums. And Keeping the Summer Alive comes right after that. And then they take a break for a while. And, uh, yeah, they are kind of a nostalgia act uh, in that they're touring county fairs and stuff. not producing a lot of new music. But then in 85, uh, Brian suits back up, joins them, and uh, they come up with this top 20 hit. So that's get you back from 1985. And then, for some mysterious reason, the follow up single to that is a song called It's Getting Late, which is kind of a ballad, uh, which wasn't that great. Uh, I believe the second single from this album should have been this. If everybody in the USA could come with us to California, yay. we could take them to a place out west. course they hit the uh, number one spot with Kokomo and then they have a follow-up single which doesn't do as well mysteriously because it's a great tune on to appearing on uh, a compilation album called Still Cruisin'. And uh, the idea was to record a whole bunch of new songs, but rumor on the street is uh, that Mike Love, the lead singer, did not want to record any new tracks, wanted to learn learning new tracks. I don't know. that was, Our friend Jimmy Pardo might say that may or may not be accurate. Okay. So anyway, and that's just a couple of examples of uh, you know, their output from 1970 uh, up into the 90s. So you can see why, though, I'm a little upset when Mr. Ward says this
2: could turn them into anything but a nostalgia act, which, sad to say, is pretty much what they became.
1: I think Mr. Ward is mostly talking about the period following 1998 after the death of Carl Wilson from cancer. Of course, Dennis had passed away in 1982, a drowning accident. But, uh, you know, to kind of brush them off, you know, and say, oh, I was just a nostalgia act after that. Well, yes, they didn't create any material largely until uh, last year's uh, That's Why God Made the Radio, a beautiful album. Uh, You know, to dismiss the whole uh, post Pet Sounds, Good Vibrations era, as uneven and uh, creatively a disaster. Uh, I'm not buying it. That's all I'm saying. So this bit has gone on long enough, and I thank you for your indulgence. Ralph Farris is a stand-up comedian you've seen on NBC's Last Comic Standing, Comedy Central, and all the late-night chat shows. Uh, just a little note here about the interview. Uh, I recorded it on Google Talk, and I thought Google Talk messed up. But no, it was just me. I ran my mic a little hot, so it sounds like I'm speaking to him through a megaphone. But at least I was at least able to turn it down a little bit, so it doesn't sound uh, too bad. But here anyway is our interview with Ralph Farris.
2: Okay. I'm sorry, what?
0: I'm outside in New York, so if you hear different sounds. No, that's fine. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's cool. All right, well geez. uh let's start to begin now I know you come from uh, a big family, but where do you come from originally?
0: I'm from Philadelphia. Uh, okay. I'm from, from from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania where I started out doing stand up in the eighties. You know, and uh and what what a good time when I think about it. I'm actually in New York where I moved to two years after starting and um I just moved back here for about uh uh six months or so to just write a new act and, and work on my one man show, uh called Management. Oh, so
2: Okay. So
0: yeah, I'm 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 sorta I'm sorta in the in the tri state region that I'm very familiar with.
2: Oh, very good. Okay, yeah. so um, yeah, my uh, my friend Philly Dave, uh, not surprisingly, from West Philadelphia. So yeah, Philly yeah, uh,
0: yeah. I know of several Philly days. I don't know which
2: one. <laughs> he said he those... I, he uh, grew up a couple of blocks from Franklin Field. He said.
0: Right, right. Oh yeah, that's where the Eagles initially started playing.
2: Yep, mm-hmm. back in the '60s. Yeah. yeah, that's where Bert Bell had his heart attack and uh, and passed the mantle on to Pete Rozelle.
0: Oh my God! Oh, look yeah. At with look at you pulling the history.
2: <laughs> my NFL. I used to host a football podcast as well. So, uh, yeah, that comes. Yeah. So, uh, so growing up, are you interested in comedy? Is it something you want to do as a career, or does that come later?
0: You know what? I actually, when I was a kid, man, I I wanted to be in the circus because I didn't talk much. You know, my family made it seem like. You know, kids couldn't speak to adults unless they were spoken to because that was the rule. It was like, you know, don't talk until you're spoken to. Stay in a child's place and that sort of thing. And oh, yeah. So, you know, when I finally got um, a chance to go to see the Ringling Brothers Circus as a kid, um, having seen the clowns, the clown that used to get all of the attention was the last one who got out of that little Mini Cooper, you know, And yeah, yeah. out of 40 clowns. And I figured – you know, with the attention and the laugh, I said, I, that's something I want to do. I want to be able to be that clown and get that kind of attention and get that kind of love, you know, focused on me. So that's what I want to do. And and uh, that's what I thought I'd end up doing. And then, you know, my friends who would always have, like, the Richard Pryor and Bill Cosby albums, we would listen to those in their basement. But I never thought it would be something I could do because I thought to be a comedian – you had to be, you know, like in your, your fifties, you know, I always thought you had to be an <laughs> old guy to be a comedian.
2: Ah, oh, that's interesting.
0: It, it turned out when Eddie Murphy sprung out, you know, in the, in the early eighties with Buckley on Saturday Night Live, some of my friends in high school turned me on to it because I used to watch Saturday Night Live, but I could never stay awake past when the band would play because it would always yeah. be some kind of music that I just was too young for and just didn't relate to. And so I'd fall asleep. And they were like, dude, you gotta watch this guy. No matter when he comes on, just watch him. And so I watched and I saw Eddie doing Mr. Rogers Playhouse and uh when I Mr. Robinson's Playhouse and when I saw that I was like, This is it and then and then he was only a few years older than me so uh I said I gotta really pay attention to this and you know, once I clicked in and my family knew I dug him you know, they started giving me all kinds of uh, cutouts in the newspaper, taking me to the movies to see him. And I went to see his live concert, and the rest was history, man. I was on my way to doing that.
2: That's cool. Yeah, I would have to say that uh, what, probably one of the most influential things for me, not even so much as stand-up, but as far as parody and satire, was uh, when the Buckwheat thing was getting a little too big, they had the whole thing where Buckwheat got shot and they covered it all on oh, Nightline. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolute yeah. genius. Oh my goodness. Is that
0: not crazy? Because speaking of uh, Eddie, Eddie was I think I think now I'm a conspiracy theorist, but I think Eddie got to the point where he's starting to do forty eight hours and and trade yeah. places and things like that and people were literally yelling out buckwheat you know, because yeah. that was funny and cool to do. And you know uh, the guy yeah. who is who's on rock star status, the last thing he wants to be called He's sort of a black exploitation-y type character, you know?
2: Cause yeah, that's true. Really yeah.
0: A proud, a proud black man, you know, who don't want to be called a character that he's sort of mimicking, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and so, yeah, I think that's why they did all of that. And it was, and you're right, it was brilliant. It was a genius when you really think about it right now.
2: You know? Oh yeah, just the whole the whole scope of it was just from the whole not just the way you know just you know like you like you're talking about with the whole uh, buckwheat character thing and you know m- kind of making fun of and the mimicking but also the whole nightline line thing and repeating the assassination oh, yeah. over and over and over. Oh, yeah. in case you oh, haven't seen it here's the clip again <laughs> and uh, Mary Gross's Alfalfa was a great turn too that was I like that oh, that yeah. was pretty funny oh. there, yeah Uh the second funniest thing I think from Eddie Murphy was uh, James Brown's Celebrity Hot Tub Party.
0: Outlook, man, was that not the craziest? Oh my thing? gosh. Man, gonna get in hot
2: tub now, I'm gonna make me sweat. Every every <laughs>
0: comedian, especially every young wannabe comedian, which is what I was, in those yeah. days I was getting ready to go in, in the basic training in the army. You couldn't tell me that I wasn't the guy in the hot tub.
2: You couldn't tell me <laughs> that
0: I wasn't James Brown. I knew <laughs> everything he did word for word and that was the one thing that my family would we would have we would have family get together. And they would do, just please, please do Stevie Wonder or do the hot tub. <laughs> just do one of them. And I would do any version of either Stevie Wonder or James Brown and the hot tub.
2: Uh, that's so funny.
0: Yep. Yeah, those are the two I'm things that not. stick
2: with me most from uh... – Yep,
0: yep. Yeah, or, it, or, 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 oddly, it, like I said,
2: oddly, those things
0: – Or the guy walking, putting up and all <laughs> Oh, my God, that was funky. <laughs> yeah. I, I know
2: say, yeah, I know a lot of uh, a lot of comedians say that delirious was really a, a turning point for them, but for me, I think those two things are first for me when I think of Eddie Murphy, those are the first two things I think of, and then delirious and the movies, of course, oh, but um oh, well, so first, y- for
0: what? Me, first for me is those characters and then his first album, which is Eddie Murphy, and it's just called Eddie Murphy oh, that's right and when he did the uh that's a fire you want to eat, you want to eat you know, shut up, Charlie. Bring it! Get that get that charcoal light fluid out of here. You know that that was the <laughs> one. Aunt Bunny falling down the steps because it 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 brought you back to the whole days of listening to radio. You know, it's like all you could do is listen to it because he hadn't performed it live anywhere at that point until Saturday Night Live gave him that one chance to do the stand up at the beginning of the show that he hosted. Like he yeah. was one of the first guys to host it while he was actually a cast member. And so, um, so when he did his stand up, that was when you got a chance to see some of the stuff from the album. But, uh, that was the thing. That was the turning point for me. That was it.
2: So you went to the army and then at that point, did you kind of think maybe, you know, you could be an entertainer or it had still wasn't, hadn't, uh, occurred to you yet?
0: Well, I, I, when I went in, I was like, you know, I gotta be, be responsible because, you know, it was 10 kids in my family, so it's like we couldn't afford so much to go to college, the the, the big money colleges. I was going to have to either get financial aid or something like that. So knowing that that was going to be the way that it went, I was like, man, I'm going to go ahead and be responsible. So I knew that the Army was going to be the best way to, to get that to happen. And um, when I went in, I had known Eddie Murphy's material word for word. So I I would get people to slack off of me with all of the pressure, the drill sergeant, they would let me perform for the for the uh soldiers when we would do marching drills and when we would give them a break, they would be like, Come on Murphy, do do, do the do your stuff and they called me Murphy. And I was huh. telling the guys, Look, stop calling me that. They're making me they're gonna work me harder, you know, because I'm <laughs> a clown, you know, and and, uh, ah. it, worked in, it worked in my favor. It actually worked in my favor. And, uh, and it kept the fire going in my belly because I could have ended up being a 20 year lifer, you know, in the military. But because they kept my dream going, you know, I just kind of went with that. And then when I got out and went into my reserve unit and I had all my little odds and ends jobs, you know, uh, it was one company that I worked for that took me to my first open mic night in Philly. And the next week I went on stage.
2: Oh, okay. So you you were kind of funny around the office, and they kind of insisted you you give it a try.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah. Oh, um, okay.
0: Me. They took. I had never been to a comedy club, and they took me, and they were like, "Look, you should do this." And I went on the very next week, and I have not turned back since. And I remember my, la- I, you know, I kept a couple of jobs to try to make real money to pay rent. And right for the guys, the guy at U P S, they hired me for about 30 days. And I couldn't keep up. They they combined two routes. They they really did me wrong on that one. But I'm not crying huh. over that spill milk. But I remember the guy telling me I'm gonna have to let you go, and I said, man, what am I supposed to do? Because I was making like eleven bucks an hour, and this is the mid '80s. And he said, yes. look, man. He said, he said, Ralph, you don't know it right now. This is the best thing that could happen to you. He said, dude, you're funny. You're gonna be a star. He said, go out there. And get it, man. He said, "Don't get held up with this. You're bigger than this." The guy told me that. Wow. I never, and I never looked back. Huh. Oh, although I had one more job, and uh, and I was it was driving paratransit for about four or five months, where I drove senior citizens to their daycare, which yeah. also ended up being good for me because now I'm you know I'm trying out material to senior citizens in a van who can't get away from me. And <laughs> if you can make seniors laugh, dude, you know, I don't, there's no better job, you know. As a matter of fact, I should start talking about that more on stage. It's like, that was like my first foray into, you know, really making an audience laugh, a captive audience, you know.
2: So what kind of things would you uh, say to them to make them laugh? Was it the stuff you would do at uh, the open mic, or do you kind of tailor it for them?
0: Well, I'd be talking about the holiday season. You know, standing in a, a department store, forgetting, forgetting the section that you're in, parking your car, not being able to find your car. I would, it's just, just common things, you know, uh, your grandkids forgetting your birthday, you know, or babysitting your grandkids when you can't run or run after them because you got a wheelchair. Just things like that. Just whatever they, I, that's where I learned that you know, there are a lot of comedians that try to perform this intellectually strong material or be extremely cynical and be over the heads of an audience, but that's where I learned if you relate to the people with things that they understand and get, you can win every time. So don't try to go over their heads. Do stuff that they know, you know? And so, uh and, and I can make it funny because I live and walk and breathe just like everybody else. Why am I going to try to do material that Nobody else knows but me, you know.
2: Yeah, so you kind you can't, you can't, of don't believe in playing to that ten percent, as Dennis Miller used to say.
0: Would you say say that one more time? You,
2: you don't believe in playing to that ten percent, as Dennis Miller used to say, where the people that no, get I, it will really get it and enjoy it. Yeah, that
0: that ten percent is why Dennis Miller is on what channel? I can't remember.
2: <laughs> you know talk I mean? radio? You
0: know, and, and, and 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 I, I I used to love Dennis Miller back when he was. You know, because Dennis Miller started out as a magician, you know, but for, for a while there, he was just having silly fun. And then it became this other thing, you know, like he became a a, yeah. a, a, a victim of his own mind, you know. His brother used to represent me hmm. for a while, actually. Really? Yeah. Well, how about that? Yeah, his brother is, yeah. is, an, is an agent, Rich Miller.
2: I did not know that. Huh.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and My friend He had another brother, Jimmy Miller, who used to also book a comedy club in uh in Manhattan Beach. Oh. huh. Pacific Beach, California, yeah.
2: My uh, friend's brother went to high school with Dennis Miller and uh okay. some of his brothers. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But they're um yeah, they're they're quite a bit older than than us, so yeah. but uh so it was a few years apart. But yeah, yeah, so huh. Small world and and if Dennis yeah. Miller would say uh Went went to, went to uh, Disney went to Disneyland and rode Small World and ran into a guy I haven't seen in uh, twenty years. <laughs> <My favorite laughs>
0: <documentary> book. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: So you went from uh, doing the UPS thing then and driving the seniors, and so you started MCing then and and, and featuring from there. Or how did that? Started, what happened after I started,
0: that? I started MCing in Philly, but I, I got I got strong really really fast. I mean, I was working and making money in six months. Because I was a hustler, you know. I was like, you know, I'm not doing this for fun. I got to make money with this. Yeah. I I literally thought all of the comedians in the city were doing the same hustle I was doing. You know, I thought they were all trying to make money. And so I'm making money. At first, I was doing Eddie Murphy's material. I didn't I didn't know that you weren't supposed to do other people's material. I thought. I remember going to the first open mic night. That first time I saw it, sitting there thinking. Why are these guys wasting their time with all of this boring-ass material when there's all that good material out there they could be doing? But see, I didn't know that the etiquette in the business was you do your own stuff. But I didn't hmm. have a voice, so I only knew the voice that I related to. But, uh um, you know, from there, you know, I just kind of slowly faded into getting hosting gigs, you know, emceeing here and there, but I got so so strong at it uh, the response for me that they, the club started sampling, you know, with me in the feature spot in the middle. And then, uh, very soon after when, when I moved to New York and started getting a few credits, like on Showtime at the Apollo and, and the different Showtime comedy club networks, those things, comic strip live, I, I became a headliner really, really fast. So by my second or third year, I was already really headlining on the road, you know, and, uh, and making good money at it. But back then, there were so many more places to work, and a club could groom you, you know, and, and to making you uh, a marketing sales act, you know, uh, where you sell tickets based on coming in a few times a year. Nowadays, you know, it's just a dog-eat-dog situation. But, you know... Yeah, it's getting that way uh, again, yeah. Certain clubs like the House of Comedy, you know, the House of Comedy still... Do it the same way back in, like in the 80s, where they would groom a comedian and have them in once or twice a year, you know, to to let the audience get, get to do Letterman, you can do the Tonight Show, you can do all of them. But they, the clubs don't respect those, and the audience don't, don't view comedians the way they used to based on those appearances. There used to be a time when you could do a Tonight Show appearance, and the next day, any club in America would cancel their headliner bring you in, and pay you oodles of money. Nowadays, you say, I got a Tonight Show credit, or 19 of them, and it doesn't make a difference. And they yeah, I- want to pay you peanuts.
2: Yeah, well, because yeah, there's just so many things that you've got to, you know, be doing. Uh, Jake Johansson oh was, was saying this on Jimmy Pardo's uh, oh, yeah. podcast a couple okay. weeks ago. You got to oh, yeah. be on podcasts. You got to be making short films. You got to be, you know, you got to stick your face yeah. in just about everything to keep it out in front. And, and then you get stuff like, as you know, uh, Last Comic Standing, where people I think are, yep. feel more compelled. It's almost like jury duty that you have to do a show like that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah, it
0: was, it was a. That was something that when I jumped, you know, they asked me to do it for five years and i said no every time i was like i'm um, no i don't i don't believe in competition for comedians i believe that comedy is like wine you know some people like the $1000 bottle and some people like $2 bottles you know and so i say look man i you know i'm not going to do it and then my manager sat me down and she said just think of it this way we're not doing this to for you to win and be the guy who won the two hundred fifty grand. I was like, what are you talking about? Why else would we do it? She said, exposure. If you go in and you get 10 episodes under your belt, she said, that's like doing 10 episodes on a regular TV show. People are going to see you for 10 weeks on national TV. And whether it be 2 million people or 5 million people, that's how many people are going to see you. Where else are you being offered that opportunity to do 10 episodes? So once I wrapped my mind around it, I went on there with a whole nother attitude, and that's why it worked out for me, because I was in a great place in my head, you know? And uh yeah. it is one of those things you don't want to be bothered with, but when you think about the fact that we need exposure to be seen, what better exposure are you going to get than something like that, you know?
2: Exact Yeah, that's what a lot of people say. That you, know, you just feel compelled to do it. So now you're in New York working. You said on a, on a new hour and and a one man show. Or how's that yeah, working?
0: New, I'm working on a new hour uh, at the clubs. I'm re-familiarizing it with myself with clubs where I used to work, and everybody seems to be very welcoming. But uh, and that's going to be fine, you know. But the one man show is a show called Manish Boy, and uh, you can find that information at ManishBoy.com. M-A-N-I-S-H dot com, and okay. uh, it's about my life. It's the story of my life along the lines of what Whoopi Goldberg did years ago, John Leguizamo, Lily Tomlin. Oh,
2: yeah. They, yeah, they, yeah.
0: I meant, they were my idols with a, a show like this, but Whoopi, first and foremost, was the one who, when I saw hers, man, I was like, I get it. I get that story, and I want to do that. And I just didn't know how to pursue it, and I didn't know how I was going to get there, but but, uh, about in 2003, a woman who tried to write a pilot for me for the networks, she saw my act. She came to, to to do some homework on on my show, and she said, "You know, you could go to Broadway." And I said, "Yeah, I ain't gonna go to Broadway. Guys like me don't go to Broadway." He said, "Trust me." And so she took me to a couple plays. Like at the time, there was a girl named Sarah Jones doing a show called Bridge and Tunnel, and then uh, P Diddy was doing. Uh, a Raisin in the Sun at the time. So we went to see it, and I said, man, you know, it's just regular people doing Broadway shows, and the stories are just real stories. So I sat down and started writing my stories, and it took me about four or five years to get it the way I wanted it. And uh, I started doing it in 08, and it, you know, it's, it got great reviews in the markets that we did it in. And now, you know, you got to come to New York to really and really do it for, for the theater critics to really kind of bless it. You know, they got to know that you really understand and respect theater for what it is. And now I totally yeah. understand, you know, and, and it's ready. It's going to do well here. I'm believing it's going to do well because I give it everything I got. Plus, I have a great director who is uh, Broadway proven, a guy named Oz Scott.
2: Okay. And any chance we will take this around the country uh, in, oh, in yeah. future oh, years? Oh,
0: that's the plan. That's oh, the great. Plan. But the but the best way to go around the country without having to go the Chitlin Circuit route is to come to New York and have it be blessed or whatever it's going to do. Even if they tell you, no, bring it back, you you got to come here to kind of gauge it and for the rest of the country to respect it. If it's not blessed in New York, it's just another play.
2: Yeah. All right, man. Well, I'll let you get back to your meetings. I know you're, you're busy. I appreciate you taking the time yeah, out of your busy yeah, schedule man. here. And, uh, I,
0: really, I really, really, really appreciate the uh, interview, and thanks for getting the word out for the show, man.
2: Hey, no problem, Ralph. Thanks a lot. All right. You take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
1: Thanks again to Ralph Harris for being on the show. You can catch Ralph Harris December 11th through the 15th at the House of Comedy in Bloomington, Minnesota. That's there in suburban Minneapolis, for those of you not in the know. Uh, also, let me see what else I wanted to tell you. Oh, yes, uh, the dumb bit was going to be something on the war on Christmas this week, but it was not because our friends over at Ross Rance, in fact, the man himself, wrote a hilarious piece about the war on Christmas. I want you to go to RossRants.com, check it out. And then go back to the previous week and see our bit we did about uh uh, Re-Gift Thursday, a little funny bit we did for uh, Ross's website there. Okay, so uh, like us on Facebook. Uh, follow me on Twitter at PF66. Uh, music composed and performed by John Veropoulos and Doug O'Connor, with a little help from me. Uh, logo designed by Dan Koble, And you can catch Dan uh, at, we can find him on Twitter at Dactyl. You can also listen to Dan and Logan's podcast, uh, the Magic Potion podcast. You can find that in iTunes. We're running a little long, so other than that, so long and thanks for listening.